Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this episode, Elizabeth Ames and myself talk all things Australia, the recent referendum, our shared past, and our current relationship looking forwards. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Anna Joy. So today we are talking Australia, which feels really exciting, actually, because I, as I reflected on this session, I thought, you know, Australia is somewhere that all Brits feel they know, (laughs) even if they haven't been there. Um, It's obviously a country that where the British people feel a lot of affinity with, and yet we probably don't follow actually that much um, necessarily the news, what's happening, and it's been in the news recently. So it's great to jump in and firstly understand what's been happening recently, but also use that as an opportunity to dig down a bit deeper and think about the relationship between our countries. So... Tell me about yourself and your connections with the UK and with Australia. Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Anna Joy, to talk about my favourite subject, which is relations between Australia and the UK. So I was born in London. My dad is English. My mother's Australian, but I primarily grew up in Melbourne in Australia, Uh, went to university in Australia and then joined the Australian Foreign Service. And I was in the Australian Foreign Service for seven years. I worked primarily on trade negotiations. So I actually worked on the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations, which came kind of full circle uh, when I did some work around the Australia-UK free trade agreement post-Brexit, which we can get to later. Um, And I had a posting to Italy, which I absolutely adored. Uh, I ate far too much pasta. And there's obviously a strong connection between Australia and Italy as well, which was amazing to get to, to work on and be part of and to understand that bilateral connection. And at the end of my time initially, I thought about my career, really thought about where I wanted to be and what I loved doing. As I think you and I have talked about in our kind of conversations uh, offline as well, as I really enjoyed the the overlap of the civil sector, government and business and thinking about how those sectors can work together to drive kind of positive change and positive outcomes for individuals, but also for, for broader economies and, and in geopolitics. And so I thought to myself, where can I move that that has a lot of companies and and organisations doing that kind of really interesting work? Um, And the immediate and obvious answer for me was London. Uh, And so I moved back to London at the start of 2016, as I like to say, kind of homeless and unemployed. Um, And I essentially went and and knocked on the doors of every big strategic communications firm in London and said, please, will you give me a job? Um, And many of them looked to me like I was crazy. Uh, But I ended up working with Brunswick Group, who are a brilliant corporate communications um, organisational company, and they also do work around philanthropy. They do a lot of work in the arts, and they were a a fantastic place to to start my career in the UK. And I I was there for two years, working primarily on their philanthropy, so working with Save the Children, also with uh, the Gates Foundation. But also, uh, because the Brexit vote happened in my first six months living in the UK, really helping them and companies think through what did a post-Brexit UK relationship with the rest of the world look like. You know, I think the UK had been understandably so focused on Europe and its European trading relationship for a very long time. And it was only when the Brexit vote forced that kind of jolt and that disconnection that um, those eyes were lifted and, and companies had to really think strategically about where else they might engage in the world. So I ended up leaving the Brunswick Group to go and uh, run the Australia-UK Chamber of Commerce. So I was the executive director at the Australia-UK Chamber of Commerce for 18 months, which was a hugely fun period. It was during the Australia-UK, the opening of the Australia-UK FTA negotiations. It was really working with companies on both sides, helping them think through what they would want from a, a free trade deal. Um, and of course, that deal was signed last year and, and has now been ratified by both countries and is enforced and is beginning to to kind of see both the flow of goods, but in particular, I think the flow of services and of people, which we might come on to later in terms of how you build uh, a modern relationship between the two countries. Um, and I now, as you know, work at a, a kind of broader strategic communications and, and global public affairs agency called Atalanta. But in my spare time, I'm the chair of the Menzies Australia Institute, which is a research institute at King's College, which really focuses on 
doing academic research into Australia, Australia's connections with the world, and really presenting a modern academic face of Australia in the UK, but also out to Europe. Um, and I serve on the board of the Britain Australia Society, which is a smaller people-to-people um, organisation, which mostly organises fun events where you get to hear from, from interesting people, um, including uh, people like the president of the Britain Australia Society, who is Lord Haig, who was the first British foreign minister to visit Australia in about 25 years when he went out uh, under the Cameron government. So as much as we talk about a strong relationship, I think the UK has often been guilty of sort of presuming that relationship is strong without actually putting the work in. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it, and we'll get onto that, won't we? But the UK has done that, I think, towards a lot of parts of the world, actually, and is now um, trying to catch up. <laughs> and there are, there's new impetus that makes sure that the UK doesn't take that relationship for granted, which uh, with the new, the changing geopolitical order, which we'll also touch on. But I wanted just to first start on the news that some people will have seen um, coming out recently. There was an important referendum on the 14th of October, wasn't there? Um, perhaps surprisingly for people from the outside, there was a no vote. Uh, tell us about it. Tell us uh, what happened. Yeah, absolutely. So in Australia, we have a written constitution, unlike the UK. Uh, we have a common law system, but there is a, a written constitution. That constitution was written in 1901 and is very focused actually on matters uh, pertaining to the economy, to trade. It essentially brought together the, the former British colonies into a single nation. So it's a very dry document. It's very legalistic. It's very concerned with what is the responsibility of the state government still and what powers are they abrogating to Canberra or to the to the federal government which was being created. So that constitution does not recognise the first peoples of Australia. It does not recognise the Indigenous people that were present in Australia at the point of colonisation who have an enduring connection to that land, a connection that dates back over 60,000 years. And this referendum was an attempt both to enshrine recognition of uh, First Nations Australians in the constitution and then also to provide a mechanism for those people, for, for the Australia's First Nations people, to have a voice to parliament. So to have a say in the policymaking process, to be an advisory body to the parliament. So it had no uh, power to make decisions or to um, vote on decisions in the parliament, but essentially would be an externally appointed advisory body that would advise both the parliament but also the government of the day on the decisions they were taking that were relevant to Indigenous affairs issues. And, it, you know, it's a long time coming. So the first uh, referendum asking about recognition of Indigenous people in the Australian constitution actually was in 1999. So in 1999, there was a referendum on whether or not Australia should become a republic. That famously lost. What people forget is there was a second question in that referendum, and the second question was about adding a preamble to the constitution, uh, which essentially recognised the presence of Indigenous people in Australia, and that also got voted down alongside the Republic one. So this was a second attempt to have Indigenous Australians recognised in the constitution, and it was a two-part question. So it was both the creation, the, the recognition of Indigenous people, and then the creation of this voice. Rather than separating that question into two parts, so do you think First Nations people should be recognised in the Constitution and then should First Nations people have a voice to Parliament, the government decided to have one single question which combined these two. And I think for a lot of Australians, we can talk a bit about the kind of the, the political headwinds and, and the campaign that happened in Australia. I genuinely think if there had been a two-part question of should there be recognition of Indigenous Australians, that almost certainly would have been voted yes. And then the secondary aspect around the Indigenous voice to Parliament probably would have still failed. But by combining those two questions in one, what you saw was sort of people reacting to the idea of a, an extra parliamentary body uh, and the idea, as was floated by the No campaign, that people would have additional rights or an additional voice that wasn't fair. And that meant that you also then saw the voting down of, of the constitutional recognition of, of first Australians. Um, but if we look back a little bit at the history of sort of where the idea of this voice came from, there was a, a process of, of Indigenous 
leadership and Indigenous discussion and debate, which culminated in 2017 in something called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So Uluru, as many of you will know, was formerly known as Ayers Rock, uh, is the, the very big rock at the centre of Australia. And it's both kind of the physical geographic centre of Australia, but it's also in many ways, uh, I guess, the spiritual centre of Australia for a lot of First Nations people thinking about kind of their connection to, to land. And so Indigenous leaders gathered at Uluru uh, and they released this one-page statement. It's really um, incredibly powerful, very, very well written, and it asked for three things. It asked for a voice, it asked for a treaty, and it asked for truth. And so the voice was a role in policymaking, a, a voice to parliament, a role for Indigenous peoples uh, to advise on, on policy that impacted them. Treaty was a formal recognition of Indigenous Australians' rights within the Australian legal system. And then the last truth was the idea of, of truth-telling. So something like you know the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions that you've seen in places like South Africa and Liberia and others, where there is an acknowledgement and a recognition of um, the violence that, that is enacted in these settler colonial nations and, and the violence that First Nations Australians suffered both at the time of colonisation but also in an ongoing capacity. Uh, and the former coalition government, so there was a, um, a, a right-wing government in place when this statement was released, they rejected uh, moving forward with, with these changes. And during the last election campaign in Australia, the Labor government committed to enacting the Uluru Statement from the heart. And Anthony Albanese actually, in his victory speech on his, on his very first night when he stood up and, and had won the election, he committed to, to taking forward the recommendations and of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and he committed to having a referendum on the voice in his first term. So this was his uh, keeping, I guess, of that election promise, um, that promise that he made in his first night, that he would hold this referendum and that he would engage with the request of First Nations Australians to uh, have a voice to Parliament. So that's a sort of potted history of the, mm. the referendum, what it covered and, and where it came from. So it's quite a blow that it was defeated or that it was a no. Is it? Or what I think it's really different. How how yeah. is it now seen and how does from the outside it looks like um that looks tough. It, <laughs> and and so I, I guess the question from the outside is where does that leave Australia now? Where does that leave the indigenous communities and uh, what happens on that issue? Yeah, and and that is you know it's a live conversation. So so the vote uh, as we were recording it only happened you know a week or so ago. Um, indigenous leaders at the when when the result became clear, indigenous leaders said that they were having a week of silence that they wanted a week of silence, a week of grieving. Uh, it's very common in indigenous communities to have. Um, a sort of grief um, rituals that that last a week or sometimes even several weeks and communities come together and, and grieve for, for loved ones if they've died. And so they called for this week of silence uh, to help them grieve the, the loss of the referendum. And so there haven't been very many Indigenous voices present in the aftermath of the, the defeat of the referendum. And obviously I don't want to speak for, for Indigenous Australians, but certainly on the night and, and the sort of feedback from a lot of Indigenous Australians in the lead up to the vote was that the loss, that the vote losing would feel very much to them like a rejection, that it would feel as though, you know, um, uh, mainstream Australians, Australians who, who moved to Australia either kind of, you know, at the point of colonisation or, or in the years since, and that is a very diverse and, and vibrant and very multicultural society, but that those Australians hadn't recognise the impact of, of their arrival on Indigenous communities and that they didn't want to give even this kind of very small level of, of recognition and engagement in the democratic process to Indigenous Australians. The debate itself, as, as all referenda are, as the Brexit one was here in the UK, was very divisive. So um, it was the, the kind of the Labour government in charge were in favour of the voice. The Greens, who are a minor uh, left-wing party uh, in the Australian system, were mostly in favour of the voice, although you did have um, a faction voting for no that were um, the progressive no's. So this was people um, kind of on the left of politics, uh, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, who said it doesn't go far enough. 
we won't vote for this because it is it's too little. And so we want greater recognition. We actually want a, a kind of a mandated role in Parliament, a bit like the Maori community have in New Zealand, where you have dedicated seats for Maori uh, being elected to Parliament. And uh, it was, uh, which you see often, I think, in, in left-wing politics, you know, it was this idea that, well, we want the perfect, so we're not going to, we're not going to vote yes for this this compromise. And so you had both a kind of a right-wing no campaign, which talked about this being divisive for the community and giving additional rights to one category and kind of in, introducing race into the constitution in a way that, that they thought wasn't uh, reflective of the Australian community as a whole. And then you had a progressive no campaign that said, this isn't going to do enough. It doesn't solve the disadvantage. It doesn't solve the the problems that are kind of the hangover of, of colonialism. And so we're also going to vote no. And so those two forces together were, I think, incredibly powerful and spoke to a lot of Australians who, who don't want to acknowledge necessarily the the harm that's happened to indigenous people or who don't don't interact with indigenous people on a day-to-day basis and so you know there there is huge evidence now from from the voting pattern that that where you had majority indigenous communities that those those indigenous ballot boxes you know voting is compulsory in Australia so you can really track who's voting at which ballot box and, and what they're voting for that those boxes those booths voted very strongly in favor of the voice to parliament, somewhere between sixty and eighty percent in favour uh, of the constitu- of the of the constitutional amendment, um, and it was more the seats that voted no were kind of more rural seats, more um, right wing seats, seats that were held by coalition. You know, members of the Australia's kind of right wing parties were seats that tended to vote no, and so. Um, there was a big divide, a bit like you saw in the Brexit vote, between kind of inner city seats, which primarily voted in favour of the voice, and then these sort of rural, regional seats that that were against it. And I think there's sort of two impacts. So there's an immediate impact in Australia, which means that, you know, another mechanism needs to be found for, for ongoing reconciliation with Indigenous peoples and, and a recognition of the role that they play. But also, and I think really much more urgently, a recognition of the disadvantage faced by a lot of Indigenous Australians. You know, they have incredibly high rates of incarceration, very high rates of suicide, um, depending on which measures you use. You know, Indigenous Australians can live between 10 and 20 years less than than the rest of Australia, and that's partly to do with kind of remote access healthcare, but it's also to do with very common and and easily treated health conditions that, that aren't treated within that community in what is a very wealthy um, com- country with, with good health care. And so there's this kind of very urgent practical work of, you know, as Australians would say, closing the gap. So, so closing the gap between Indigenous communities, particularly remote Indigenous communities, and um, kind of Australians that live in, in towns and, and in kind of rural uh, and regional hubs and, and have better access and, and have kind of better health uh, and life outcomes. So that, I think, work is very urgent. I think there is also then, uh, for those of us who were in favour of the referendum, I think there's a real question around how how do you then get mainstream Australia to recognise and engage with the history of colonisation in Australia in a way that doesn't feel like you're telling them it's their fault or that doesn't feel like you are holding them accountable for the sins of the past. And, you know, this is a debate that happens all around the world, slavery, reparations. You know, there are lots of countries with that legacy and grappling with that legacy more or less successfully. But I do think it's a really interesting global question is how do you have those big picture conversations about about those histories and about the, the way in which those histories play out today in a way that engages people and doesn't turn them off and doesn't make them feel defensive and doesn't make them feel as though you're you're kind of attacking them for, for their life and something they would see as not their fault. And then globally, you know, I think there is a conversation about you as you say, people people looking from outside looking in have sort of said, well, we thought Australia was this modern progressive nation and it's just voted not to recognise its indigenous people. What what is this country? What does that mean? What does that mean for my view of Australia? And I think, you know, I'm not in the Australian Foreign Service anymore, but but I have friends who who still work as, as diplomats overseas and, and represent Australia. And I think for close allies, it's probably an easier conversation, but particularly in the global south where Australia has a sometimes complicated relationship being kind of very 
geographically centred in the Global South, but being much more culturally and economically a member of the Global North, you know, how does Australia engage critically on its issues with, with Pacific Island neighbours, with neighbours in Southeast Asia around you know, how, how is Australia treating its own Indigenous population and what role does it have in promoting kind of peace and security globally and what is it practically doing at home? Um, so... Sorry, that's a yeah, long answer to your no, question, this is amazing. The There's so about. much to unpack, isn't there? I was struck when you said it sounded like the no campaign was very effective in its messaging as well. Did you say it was "If you don't know, say no" slogan that was used? Yeah, if if if, if you don't know, vote no. Vote no, yeah, a, and and said it's. It said in a very broad Australian accent mm. as well. So I think, you know, probably even more striking. <laughs> yeah, rather than the British one that I'm saying it with. <laughs> but that's, um, the, obviously, Britain has its own very recent uh, experience with a referendum with some similarities around some of the messaging, um, strength of messaging and campaign, and also what was originally presented to the people. And so... Um, yeah, we we get that challenge as well. I I just wanted to hop back. I wanted to link up actually this thing about history because the UK is part of this story, and we we don't necessarily uh, learn in our schools the nuance and the different perspectives that we should. I think, in my opinion, and I just want you to make that link between the history you're talking about and the UK you would yeah absolutely so I did I did go to school in the UK for for a while um when I was 11 and 12 we moved back here for a little bit with my parents and and went was lucky enough to go to school uh lovely school in South London um and it really struck me then, and it struck me since sort of talking to to friends who are, who are parents of children in British schools about the way in which you know, British children learn about um, Britain's empire and what that meant and what that looked like. And I think there are some conversations now that are happening around slavery and reparations. You know, you've seen kind of quite live conversations in in a lot of kind of parts of the Caribbean and, and you know, votes for, to become a, a republic there. What I think is interesting in the Australian case, and this applies also, you know, to Canada and to, to New Zealand, um, slightly less so to South Africa, um, but because those countries were settler colonial nations, so it wasn't just that, that the British came in and provided a kind of ruling class and colonised these countries for, for raw materials, but they also shipped out, I mean, you know, originally very unsavoury characters um, and then uh, some, some slightly more outstanding Brits uh, came out to Australia. Um, but because British people settled in Australia and, and really in, in some respects turned it into a mini version of home, you know, you drive through... The Australian landscape and half the town names are, are named after places in the UK. I was really struck recently when when driving through uh, Devon and Cornwall, how many of those names are the names of places of towns where I grew up and you know people moved out and they 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 named these places after themselves, after the towns they knew. And so because so many of the faces looking back at Britain from Australia for so long looked the same uh, as the British faces. I think there was much less of a recognition that there had been first peoples in Australia, that that the arrival of the British and the arrival of the settlers had really disrupted that that way of life that, as I said, was you know millennia old, and and that's reflected even in the way in which um, British colonialism was was enacted in law. So there was a famous law in Australia called Terra Nullius, you know, literally empty land, and that was the idea that Britain colonised Australia not through a war where it won land and, and held on to it or not through a treaty where it, it kind of had a negotiation with, with Indigenous peoples and signed a treaty about who would own what, but through the idea that Britain just said, this land is empty so it's ours to take because no one else is here. And we, we know that's not true because we know that Indigenous Australians were there and are, are still present and living uh, on the land in Australia. But that I think that legal fiction and that idea idea that, that Australia was essentially mini England that was sort of sunnier and, and much, much better at sport, uh, that, that that continued on uh, in the UK and I think continues to this day. And, and there's not necessarily a reflection, A, of what a modern Australia looks like. You know, Australia's had massive migration, particularly from, from East and Southeast Asia, but also from South Asia over the last 
20 to 30 years and the you know there is a large there are a large number of young Australians who don't who who look much more diverse than than I think a lot of Brits would expect or, or would think of and when I have conversations with British policymakers and and with kind of your British friends they don't always understand what modern Australia looks like you know they still think of of a country that likes to drink beer and, you know, backpackers kind of hang out on the beach for 12 months and then they come back to the UK and they've had a nice time. Um, but that, the kind of both the legacy of the the colonisation in Australia and what that means, I think that conversation has not really been had, certainly not at a school level, but not so much even at, at the policymaking level. And then also the idea of what is a modernist? What what is modern Australia? Who are they? What do they look like? What are we engaging with? And what does that mean for our, our kind of ongoing relationships? Some of those questions. I think actually the UK is getting better at the second that, that Brexit has forced a, a, a closer engagement with Australia and geopolitical realities, as, as we'll talk about, have forced that closer engagement. So I think that understanding is getting better. But I think that that history conversation hasn't been had. Um, and I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure there's space for it in the UK kind of policymaking landscape. There's a lot of other very pressing conversations around, uh, as you know, around kind of decolonisation and reparations for slavery and others that that probably take priority in people's minds. But um, yeah, it's certainly there, and it certainly hasn't been dealt with. At some point, that will be important to have. And I think, interestingly, there are some co- uh, conversations that I had around injustice. Um, but more from the side of people that were sent, children that were sent to Australia, for example, taken away from their families and sent. So there is, there is, there's a sense that things, there were injustices along the way, um, but not yet uh, the what the deep, deep ones that you're talking about. I think um, it's one of the things for me personally that I think it's absolutely crucial that we do as we look forward and part of why I've started this podcast is that if Britain is going to be confident about its place in the world now it has to have the conversations about the place it's had in the world and it has to be able to look at that with a nuanced and humble understanding Um, and then we can find the confidence and the boldness to move forward and be confident and around our place um, in the 2020s and the 2030s that looks very different. <laughs> and so coming coming on to that, uh, you talked about modern Australia and I love I love actually hearing about this this almost like a new version of the relationship now with the changing global order and geopolitical um, context but also post-Brexit there seems like a slightly new era in the relationship between the two countries and so I'd love you to tell us more about that um perhaps first how it looks currently when the Australia looks at the UK how does it currently see the UK um and then I'd love us to unpack more um around trade but also defense etc yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for for Australia, apart from a sort of little wobble in 1972 where, where Britain joined the European community and a lot of Australians and Australian policymakers felt kind of abandoned, as, as they'll tell you if you meet people who are old enough to remember that, um, Australia has always seen a very strong and, and steadfast partner in the UK. You know, they are very closely aligned in terms of um, geopolitical views, uh, governments of both stripes work together incredibly closely and incredibly well. And I think one of the really interesting factors in, in political life in the UK and Australia is the amount of movement between um, between the two countries. You know, the man currently running the, the, well, who ran the last Tory election campaign is going to run the next Tory election campaign. Isaac Levito is, is Australian and has run Australian election campaigns. And similarly, you know, People that won elections for for Bob Hawke and and Paul Keating came over and advised Tony Blair and his team and and uh, you would know that there are Australian kind of Labour um, campaigners now in the UK kind of working with Sir Keir Starmer and and his team as well following uh, Anthony Albanese's win in Australia. So those those kind of political links remain incredibly 
strong and and there are a huge number of similarities between the two political systems that mean that uh, a relationship at that political level has always been quite easy, I think, and quite and quite straightforward and has been very strong. You know, uh, Australia has been included. Obviously, Australia kind of really pushed for the creation and, and ongoing formation of the, the G20, which has been a critical forum for global decision-making since the, the financial crisis in 2008. But Australia is now being invited often to sit on the sidelines of the G7, on the sidelines of NATO in these four in which the UK is a, a strong and kind of ongoing player. And a lot of that participation has been down to UK advocacy for the inclusion of Australia in, in these spaces um, or support for the inclusion of Australia. And, and that's partly, you know, the UK likes to have a, a supportive voice, but I think it's also the UK really recognising the importance of Australia's understanding of, of the region and also the role that Australia can play as a kind of gateway into into Asia and into Southeast Asia for British um, businesses as well. And, and that's where, you know, I think the real, there's sort of two hugely positive things to come out of the, the free trade agreement that was signed. One is obviously the kind of the increased goods and, and services access. But for me, it's particularly the services access and then the people-to-people links. So services, as you know, are provided by humans. Um, and a lot of that involves people flying between the two countries, working closely together, collaborating on on projects and the ability for Australian firms to bid for big UK contracts and vice versa really embeds those kind of people-to-people links and that expertise in some of those bigger government uh, and private sector projects. And then the second was the liberalisation of the under-31 youth mobility visa. So it's become three years instead of two. And the ability for young Australians to come to the UK and the ability for, for young Brits to move to Australia to work and live for a few years is really invaluable in building those modern links. Uh, so I think, you know, kind of looking at the UK, Australians really sort of see and talking to young Australians moving over here, um, they see somewhere that that has huge potential where they can build their careers, where they can get experience that they can't always get back in Australia, you know, that they can focus perhaps on European issues or or kind of uh, North Atlantic issues in a way that's harder from from Australia just with the time zone and the geography. And similarly, you know, Brits moving to Australia can have that opportunity to focus on and understand um, Southeast Asia much more strongly and, and really get a sense of um, Australia's kind of role in the region and, and Australia's policy making there. So I think it's, it is a really exciting kind of forward-looking positive time for, for the relationship between the two countries. And I think it, it is now... You know, when I was a diplomat, they, there was a phrase about creative middle power diplomacy, which was the idea that Australia was you know, small in the number of people, but economically very strong, and it was a, a middle power. And so we had to think really creatively about where we would expend our effort and our energy and, and what uh, what Australia would have uh, impact on and where we would spend our diplomatic resources. Um and the UK doesn't always want to recognise that it's a middle power now. I was going to say, <laughs> it sounds like Britain has a lot to learn in that area. <laughs> and I think, you know, Britain is a member of the P5 on the Security Council. It does have that kind of, that, that role at the very apex of, of kind of global security policy. But in a lot of other respects outside of the EU umbrella, the UK does need to think much more creatively about who its allies are, where it sits in the world, which issues it wants to have standing on and which ones it doesn't. Um, And I think, you know, until recently, the UK really was seen as a leader on climate policy. And I think it's a a real shame to see the UK resile from that commitment um, because that that is recognised globally. And that's something that, you know, the incoming Australian government, uh, the the left-wing government in Australia has been very vocal about wanting to change Australia's positions on climate policy. And that was a real area of kind of uh, potential collaboration. But it also, as you say, you know, we're we're in a geopolitical circumstance where you're seeing very much the rise of China, but also the huge rise of India and the strengthening of of India as a, a powerful player on the global stage as well in a way that, you know, I think the kind of reflects much more accurately the kind of, you know, millennia sweep of sort of world history rather than just the last couple of hundred years. Um, And and a phrase that Australia often uses is talking about the Indo-Pacific. So that is the idea of sort of, you know, the Indian Ocean stretching around the Pacific and this idea of a kind of an arc of countries, an arc of of, of rising um, 
geopolitical players from China, th- from India rather, through China. And you know, it's a convenient lens because it places Australia in the centre. But it also, I think, is is really a realistic reflection of where a lot of that that power and attention is going to be heading over the next 20 years. And so having a like-minded partner in the region and seeing Britain's re-engagement with that region um, is going to be really important. Mm. I want to come back to your question about the creative middle power diplomacy. But but just on that around China, India and the Indo Indo-Pacific tilt as it's sometimes <laughs> debated here. Um tell us about AUKUS, what what that is, but also what it signified when that happened and continues to be unpacked. Completely. And it's so AUKUS is uh, Australia, UK, US. It's just a sort of you know, putting together the three, uh, the, the start of the three countries. Um, at its heart, or the kind of genesis of it, was an agreement between Australia, the UK, and the US for the UK and the US to share um, military technology, particularly nuclear submarine technology, with Australia to enable Australia to develop a fleet of nuclear powered submarines. Um, starting with the US kind of uh, sending some Virginia-class submarines to Australia for, for Australia to use kind of at some point, I think in the 2030s. And then at the same time, on a parallel track, Australia and the UK are developing uh, a submarine called the SS AUKUS, which will be a jointly developed nuclear submarine. So that will be for Australians, that submarine will be nuclear-powered. Uh, Australia is not a nuclear power itself, so it won't carry nuclear weapons unlike some of the British uh, nuclear and American nuclear submarines. But essentially... Australia has a kind of an ageing fleet of diesel-powered submarines. It had been on a journey to um, replace those with uh, retrofitted French nuclear submarines that were going to be fitted with diesel engines. Um, And the Morrison government, the the former Conservative government in Australia, um, negotiated the AUKUS agreement behind the backs of the French in, in a way that was quite disruptive to that relationship for a while, but with a view to what did Australia need to secure its kind of position uh, in um, in its region and, and what sort of outward projection of, of military um, uh, military capability did Australia need? And so the, the decision was that it needed to be nuclear submarines and it made a lot of sense then to work with the UK and the US. But AUKUS is much broader than that. So it's a huge transfer of military technology, but it's also a big transfer of civilian nuclear technology. And so really helping Australia to build up some of that um, technology. Australia doesn't have nuclear power plants, despite being um, seismically very stable and also having a huge supply of uranium. This is, I think this year, it's a, a live debate in Australia. I would, I certainly kind of come down on, on one side of, of that debate, but it is a uh, it is also about the people-to-people links. So this, this submarine will be built between the UK and Australia. So you will have parts of the submarine being built in Adelaide, parts being built in British shipyards. And so the kind of the links between those shipyards, the links between the, the military, um, incredibly strong as well. And then you'll see it kind of begin to branch out. So it's really, you know, I think it's it's a fascinating deal because it, it is an all-encompassing. So it starts with this kind of, this very particular uh, defence need, defence procurement need on the Australian side. And it's really been spun out, I think, quite creatively and quite interestingly into a much broader geostrategic partnership and thinking about ways in which the three countries can can collaborate and provide support to each other in a way that that as you're starting to see a sort of fragmentation of global power bases is um, is is a creative way, is a creative response to to kind of the geopolitical tensions that, that we've seen. Yeah, it feels like really one to watch, doesn't it? Because um, there's some very interesting benefits for regions around Britain and certain um, towns and cities. And that's very important from the UK side as it looks to tackle regional inequality. So that that's something I think that's interesting. But also I was understanding that that actually if you look at the level of political attention that has been put on it by the US and Australia it's actually more um it could be said to be being taken more seriously and given more political attention and will in terms of uh the level of position that has been given people that have been 
output to make sure it follows through, um, etc. than the UK. And, and I think that's also something for us to sit up and pay attention to as Britain, that Britain, um, that it would it'd be a real loss if Britain has made that step forward, has signed up to something that is creative and exciting opportunity. Um, but it does need to then follow through with that same focus. I think, I mean, there is, there are divisions. I've met people in the foreign office working specifically on AUKUS and I know that there are, there are British diplomats, you know, in Canberra and Australia working on, on AUKUS and obviously a huge collaboration as well with, with BAE systems, which um, will be delivering parts of the, the project. So I think, you know, this was a commitment at the highest political level, you know, it brought together the leaders of the three countries to, to make the announcement. I think there's a huge amount of political um, focus and goodwill the problem, as you say, I think more is sustaining that through a very long development process in the face of challenges. You know, we're seeing challenges at the moment in the Middle East with Israel-Palestine and, and kind of pre- preventing that from, from that conflagration from, from spreading further. There's the ongoing uh, crisis in Ukraine. And so, you know, as, as policymakers and particularly defence policymakers face a, a much more challenging geostrategic landscape how do you find the time to kind of have a focus on a big strategic goal that's not on fire that's not urgent today Mm. but is really important to develop long term and I think that is uh you know I I don't envy the the foreign secretary I don't envy um whoever's going to be filling that role after next year's election I think it's an incredibly incredibly difficult challenge and I think you that's one where having those strong people-to-people links and, and having people at the working level who are able to drive things forward whilst, you know, people potentially at the political level aren't able to give things their full attention and then able to escalate and get that attention when they when they need it, I think that's going to be really critical. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially for something, as you say, that is this long-term perspective and long-term positioning. I was interested to come back to this creative middle power diplomacy and um, I wondered if you have any perspectives when you look when you look through that kind of lens with limited resource but an entire globe full of countries and relationships that need to be maintained and potentially invested in how has Austra- how is Australia looking at parts of the world that it may not have traditionally had such strong links with, but which are increasingly important. Because I think that's something that the UK is currently grappling with. As things shift and change, there seem to be... It's no longer enough to just depend on traditional allies and alliances, and there are whole parts of the world that, um, that if Britain doesn't invest in, now there will be repercussions or they may be interested in you know strengthened relationships with the UK um so there's a window how does Australia how have you seen Australia deal with those strategic decisions around where to put resource and focus yeah it's a it's a huge it's a huge challenge I don't you know I don't think Australia's got it right by by any means Australia did uh when I was in the foreign service so in 2014 I think Australia did what the UK subsequently did so it merged its aid department into its foreign affairs department but the Australian foreign affairs department was already a combined foreign affairs and trade department so Australia now has trade foreign affairs and aid sitting within one department and that wasn't an easy transition it wasn't easy in kind of 1987 when they merged trade in with with foreign affairs and it wasn't easy when the the aid department was merged in I know that's been a difficult transition for a lot of people in the new FCDO as well um but I do think strategically it makes a lot of sense I think it would make sense for the UK to merge it, its trade policy making in under the FCDO as well and, and to have a, a combined department because I think one of the things Australia's recognized very successfully early on was that um, economic links and trade links and and kind of private sector links between countries can help be a real driver of some of those political and, and security links. So, you know, a friend of mine who works in trade policy 
uh, he always says, you know, FTAs follow business. So you can't set up a free trade agreement between two countries that have no trading relationship and suddenly expect business to fill the void. Where free trade agreements are really successful is where there is already a strong trading agreement between two countries or a group of countries, and an FTA helps to liberalise that and helps to kind of make it easier for businesses to do their work and do their business. So that is, I think, something that that the UK, that's a, a strategy the UK really should should be looking at stealing uh, and thinking about, you know, there are a lot of creative UK companies out there trading um, all over the, the world. You know, my, my organisation from London, we work closely with a lot of African countries. We work closely with parts of, of the Middle East and um, have worked previously, you know, in Afghanistan, Iraq and, and um, worked, uh, worked in some of these kind of fragile and conflict-affected states, particularly with kind of women political candidates running for office and, and peace-building processes. And that is where, you know, harnessing the expertise of, of small companies that are building those links and thinking about making connections to them and, and how they can help represent the UK overseas and build those links and build that support really makes a big difference. And it means that it doesn't have to just be a heavy lift on the part of policymakers, a heavy lift on the part of the civil service, but you're taking advantage of, of people that are already in country, that know the country well, that have those links, that have those relationships. And so I think that is, for me, the, the single most effective strategy for, for a kind of stretched and small foreign foreign kind of policy area is thinking creatively about harnessing those links and using using those people and who who are there effectively Mm, I love that that's a great takeaway I just wanted to finish with um getting your perspective because you really do and have sat right between the two countries right and I think that gives you a really unique insight and what something that I'm doing through this podcast is collecting views and insights from people looking from the outside or able to straddle between countries around Britain's role in the world going forwards and particularly its strengths and its value add that makes sense for these coming decades. As I said, moving from what it's done potentially in the past or uh, the way it's positioned itself in the past. And so I just, I was interested to get your thoughts. You know, when you look at the UK in the world, what 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 do you see? Yeah, I th- I mean, it's a fascinating question. I think it's almost two sides of a coin. So you see some kind of massive British overconfidence, this idea that Britain is still a huge, powerful player on the world stage, you know, the equal of, of an America, um, which obviously isn't true kind of economically or militarily or in terms of of Britain's foreign policy clout. But then the other side of that is you see a lot of British apologising for, you know, the role that they have played or that they will play or not understanding where they can fit in. And I think, Mm. you know, Britain needs to kind of develop, you know, it's something you, you and I have spoken about, something you want to do with this podcast, is developing a confident sense of who it is now as a nation and thinking not about a kind of glorified past or a, a kind of terrifying future, but actually saying, well, we're still a, a really kind of powerful G7 economy. There's a huge amount of, of industry and creativity. You have, uh, you know, there's an enormously um, uh, diverse population in the UK that there, there are people who've come from all over the world that, that speak all sorts of languages and, and thinking about how the UK harnesses those populations. And, and you know, the fact that Britain at the moment has, you know, a South Asian prime minister or a prime minister kind of South Asian background who whose family were, were formerly in, in Africa and has a black foreign minister. You know, those are really incredible achievements, uh, I think, for, for a nation. You, know, you haven't seen anything like that in France and, and France equally has a, has a colonial history and hasn't integrated, I think, incoming populations anywhere near as successfully as the UK has done. So there are huge things that the UK should be proud of and, and should really be able to, to advocate for. And I think as you say, kind of thinking realistically about its past, acknowledging what happened and then building on that to move forward to a place of of influence and interest. And I think areas in which the UK really can and should be a leader are things like climate policy. You know, there's there's huge opportunities with offshore wind power in the UK. Um, There's an enormous opportunity for the UK to to improve its housing stock and, and get kind of house house building policy right in a way that might actually then 
be beneficial to other other countries. Um, so I think in that kind of that green and climate space and sector. And then I think there's huge opportunities as well for the UK in innovative financial instruments. And that's not, you know, kind of scare, scary things on bond markets or short selling stocks. It's things like impact investing. It's things like saying we have a massively creative and talented financial sector in this country. We have organisations that are leading, you know, impact investing globally. And so why don't we help think about, you know, you've got countries like Australia, uh, Norway and others that have these huge number, amounts of, of pension funds under management. The UK, now that we have compulsory pensions, also is beginning to develop quite a large pool of pension funds under management. How do we think about where you can creatively invest that money in a way that not only gets financial returns, but also sees kind of social and environmental returns, either for UK populations or for populations in, in you know, the global south that desperately need investment in infrastructure to help their economies grow. And so I really think it should be kind of looking to the strengths, looking to sectors where the UK has a global edge and then thinking about, right, let's use that expertise creatively and then think about how you share that technology, share that understanding, do that capacity building um, globally. And I think that that would be a, that, that's my kind of positive mm. pitch for the future of the UK. I love it. I love it. I actually particularly like that last bit that you said that because I think they are very live conversations at the moment around the sectors that Britain is strong in. But I like then how you made that extra leap if it's therefore strong in the creative industries, the music industry, the finance sector, which other countries then that we have links with, is it then building capacity or working with particularly on on those areas and I think that's a nice nice example of Australia actually yeah that's great Elizabeth you've been amazing I feel like you're the ultimate expert on <laughs> UK Australia with all the different positions and really appreciate the input and the way that you are personally being part of forging together that narrative of the two countries moving forward so all the best with your continued efforts in that space and thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today thanks for having me on it was a great conversation thank you for listening to the great british foreign affairs podcast where britain meets the world subscribe today share it with a friend or a colleague and be part of shaping britain's role on the global stage